Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. So I, I was asked to speak to you today um, about climate and communities and adapting to the new normal. And um, my first slide there is actually, it's a um, painting by an artist friend of mine, um, Jan van Dyck, a Brisbane artist, and it's his imaginings of what climate change might look like. Um, and he finished it uh, sort of late last year, shortly before COVID started. And I actually think it's held up well because we've sort of got multiple things going on at the moment um, in the time of climate change. So I was asked to speak to you about adapting to the new normal. And first of all, I wanted to sort of pose the question, well, is there a new normal? Um, so we're going to have a look at what climate change looks like now and in the future and have a look at some trends and some impacts on health and communities. And the second question I'm asking is, can we actually adapt? So unfortunately, we're gonna start, you know, I'm gonna take you, take you pretty low before hopefully I can bring you back up again. So this is um, a bit of graffiti from down the road at my place. We will all die in the impending ecological collapse. So it sounds pretty dire um, and we certainly have work to do. So what's going on? Just a quick sort of climate change 101. We've got um, atmospheric carbon dioxide um, increasing, has been for some time. Um, and what that does is um, it creates warmer temperatures on Earth as those gases get trapped and create what's called the greenhouse effect. Um, so we hear a lot about carbon as being an issue, but it's not the only greenhouse gas. So methane is another one. Um, it's actually more potent than carbon, um, but it's shorter lived. So carbon will, uh, you know, when it's um, carbon's emitted, it stays in the atmosphere for, you know, upwards of 100, 200 years. Um, with methane, it's around 20 years or so. So what's, what is this actually doing? So these are temperature anomalies um, relative to the 20th century mean. Um, and as you can see, since about the time that I was old enough to think I could ride a tricycle, um, we've um, been at above average temperature anomalies. So we haven't had any below mean years since the mid 1970s. So what does this actually mean? So we see not only an increasing in means, um, mean temperature, but an increasing in extremes. So at the moment we're sitting at just over one degree global average warming. Um, in Australia, we're sort of nearly at one and a half degrees. Um, and part of that is because we're a large land mass. So the average global increase takes into account ocean as well. And that's tempered very much by the sea. So Australia is warming at a more rapid rate um, than on average for, for the globe. Um, and what this means, so an increasing extreme, so increasing temperatures, and we also see more variable rainfall and more uncertain rainfall. So an increasing frequency, duration and intensity of extreme events. So extreme heat waves, extended droughts, bushfires, um, severe storms, um, cyclones are expected to increase in intensity, but may actually reduce in frequency. So we may get fewer of them, but they'll be um, much stronger. And of course, sea level rise and the storm surges that can go along with that as well. So this changes our seasons, um, you know, extending the, the hot seasons, for example, and extends the geographical distribution. So the tropics in Australia, are, if you like, are sort of getting, getting lower, getting further down to Brisbane. And there's more energy in the system driving all this change. So whenever I give a talk about climate change, I think about the recent records that we might have, um, that we've recently broken. And every time I give a talk, I have to update this list. Um, and I give those talks pretty frequently. So I've just got a selection here um, from a few um, sort of recent extreme heat events to point out. 
um, one, the Middle East heat dome. So that gave us a feels like temperature of 74 degrees, the combination of heat and humidity. And I, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine what that would feel like um, having to be out in those conditions. Um, a town of Moree in New South Wales, I'm not sure if anyone's joining from there, but um, I'm sure you'd remember um, in February 2017, so we'd hit over 50 consecutive days above 35 degrees um, just in one town. And again, Penrith um, in 2018 had temperatures over 47 degrees. Another one to note is, um, and this isn't a typo, but temperatures 30 degrees above average in the Arctic in January 2018. And we've only seen that repeat um, subsequently as well in the, in the Arctic summers. So it's led to a number of unprecedented events. So Cyclone Winston in the Pacific Islands was extra extraordinarily strong. Um, we had around the same time sort of deadly monsoons in India, Nepal and Bangladesh around the same time as Hurricane Harvey um, and just massive amounts of water um, dumped on, on vast areas and many people died. The California wildfires in 2019 were bad and then in 2020 we've seen the gigafires, so a repeat um, situation there. Now we also see that record cold happens as well. So um, in Europe and in North America, we have seen um, winter temperatures plunge much lower than you might otherwise expect. And so that gives a lot of people um, reason to say, oh, there's no global warming. But the reason behind that is, is that the, the polar vortex, the circulation system that keeps the cold air um, further north, um, that polar vortex is weakened by the warmer temperatures. And so that cold air escapes and what you, do end up seeing as things like this. So this is Niagara Falls, and this is what global warming can look like. So how will climate change affect Australia? So as I mentioned, cyclones might become more intense, but less frequent. Um, extreme rainfall events are expected to become more intense. So less rain overall in a lot of areas, but when it does rain, it's going to be pretty, pretty heavy. Um, hotter and drier um, around much of the country, heat waves longer and hotter um, and also happening more frequently. Um, so higher sea levels, so an increase in flooding in coastal cities and towns, particularly if it's coupled with storm and storm surges. Uh, potential severe thunderstorm days and droughts are going to happen um, more often and over wide areas. So we're now in what's been called the Anthropocene. So this means that we've so fundamentally altered our life support system, um, that humans have altered our life support system. And so it's actually changed that system, which is just phenomenal if you think about the scale of the, of the planet and what we've managed to do. Now, my area is climate change and health. And this is, I just pop this slide up here. This isn't new thinking. So Tony McMichael is um, my former, he was my former boss and mentor at ANU during my postdoc. And he actually, it's his work that got me into this. And he wrote this book in 1993, Planetary Overload. So we've had a long time to be thinking about these things and a long time to do something about it. So he was one of the first people to really make the connections between climate change and health. So the ways in which climate change affects health, um, there is the very obvious ways, you know, very extreme heat days. Um, and we do, we do see people die during those extreme heat, um, heat times, heat waves. Um, bushfires, another obvious one, and severe storms. So those very direct kind of, kind of impacts on, um, on lives and causing injury and trauma and so on. But there's also a number of less direct impacts of climate change. So vector-borne disease, so, um, and these are ones that are mediated by, by the environment. So warmer temperatures, 
and, and higher rainfall leads to more mosquitoes and more transmission of vector-borne disease. Um, respiratory disease, so longer pollen seasons, more intense, um, a, a sort of higher pollen counts um, and more, more allergenic allergenic pollen as well. So contributing to, to asthma and allergy. And we've seen, um, just as an example, the thunderstorm asthma event in Melbourne a few years ago was, was extraordinarily intense as well, which was coupled with high pollen count and severe storms. Um, so gastroenteritis as well, so food and waterborne disease. Um, just as an example, um, cases of salmonella um, increase during the warmer months. Um, and it's because the microbes can um, multiply more quickly on surfaces, for example, and in, and in food. Um, we see an increase in association of um, depression and suicide during drought um, in rural areas. And so the increase in drought is likely to lead to an increase um, in mental health disorders, particularly in rural areas. Um, increase in obesity and chronic disease as well. So, you know, potential for less available fresh, fresh produce. Um, so eating less healthily, um, but also not wanting to, to move. Um, I don't know about you, but when the temperature warms up, you really just kind of want to lie around in a hammock rather than get out and get moving. Um, and then also impacting on, on food security as well. So um, droughts, again, and severe storms can, can damage food crops. So this is sort of representing this in another way, the sort of more physical and ecological impacts um, of temperature and those physical um, sort of weather events, um, but also showing that there's a much broader impact um, on society as well. So, you know, affecting infrastructure, displacing people. Um, there's, there's very much, um, you know, an understanding in sort of the climate change and health world that the largest impacts will actually be from um, displacement and conflict, um, for example, over scarce resources rather than from, from people dying directly um, from heat, for example. So a broad range of things that climate um, affects. So just to talk about some of these. So um, extreme heat, um, obviously, it's increasing. Um, so a few examples from around the country, and this is actually a few years old now, this slide, um, and things have only gotten gotten worse. Um, but some examples from these times. So in Canberra, where I'm from, um, in Ngunnawal country, um, the number of heat wave days has more than doubled. Um, in Sydney, heat waves now start earlier. Um, in Darwin, the number of days have doubled and so on. So there's particularly, Impacts are happening, um, you know, in all of our capital cities um, and Melbourne would certainly attest to that. Now, something to keep in mind when um, thinking about climate and health is not everybody's equally affected. Um, so people who are older, um, if you're Indigenous, homeless or migrant, socially isolated, or you've got underlying health conditions, if you're less mobile, dependent on other people, have a low income, you're much more um, at risk, particularly during extreme heat events. Um, but other groups of people who are also at risk are those that we might think of as being the sort of the fittest and the healthiest in our society. So people who work outdoors and also our emergency services workers. And that's because they're out there um, having to attend um, to incidents during those um, times when um, it would actually be much safer to, to be inside. And of course, also those risks vary by location. So urban areas tend to heat up. Um, there's the Thing called the urban heat island effect um, so all the the concrete and so on absorbs the heat during the day and it gets hotter and hotter and it stays warmer at night so if you've um, got access to green space and trees and parks you're much better off as well um, we're also around the country not um, equally susceptible to heat when it happens and that's um, you know largely in part to do with the ways that um, we've 
become physiologically adapted to in some to a degree um, and also the behaviors that we might do as well so just to pick some examples here um, in Queensland mortality starts to rise at around 30 degrees um, but in Tasmania it's at around 27 degrees so only small differences but that makes um, makes a bit of a difference when you're thinking about extreme heat so there is some capacity for some level of adaptation um, to the to the environment that we're used to living in and we also do behaviorally adapt as well so you know typical as you know australian summer um, pictures about you know what we do when it gets hot we we find a body of water I'm going to run through some examples here um, and part of this is to show that you know we can't always um, adapt to what's um, to what's in store or what we're what we've been exposed to so far so I'm sure those of you in Melbourne would remember in 2009 the extreme heat that um, that Melbourne suffered where transport was shut down um, railway tracks were buckled there was loss of power people got stuck in lifts and had to be rescued and so on um, now that directly led to uh, um, more than 200 deaths and to the point where there wasn't actually room to store the bodies so that's sort of how extreme these events are and obviously a huge economic cost as well. And around the same time, we did see the Black Saturday bushfires in Victoria, which were extraordinary and unprecedented at the time. So 173 people died during those fires. Um, and the, the impacts were very far reaching. So, um, you know, it affected livestock and food crops, um, national parks and so on. And these conditions had never, never been seen before in these, in these areas. And, you know, wind, winds were extraordinarily strong um, and the temperature was extraordinarily high and it was just no way, no way out of there. For, for many people who were trapped at that time. And it's very much changed the way that we um, that we look at bushfires now. So we have had to, you know, at some level have had to adapt. Um, so the, you know, the, I'm sure many of you know, there used to be this idea that you stay and you defend your property. And now there's times when um, that's just not tenable at all. It's a leave and leave early. Um, so another kind of um, sort of climate associated health outcome, um, we, we normally get dengue in far north Queensland every year, we get an outbreak, it's brought in from overseas, it doesn't circulate locally all year, um, but it is brought in every year and it circulates at that time. Um, so normally there's around 200 cases per year, but in um, 2009 there were 1200 cases. And if we think about it, it wasn't only the people who were sick from dengue who were affected, it actually caused a shortage in national blood supply because um, the Red Cross couldn't take donations from the areas that were affected. So just trying to demonstrate the kind of the, the bigger, um, broader impacts of, cl of climate change on health that might extend a little bit beyond what we initially see as the, as the health impact. Um, the millennium drought in Australia. So I'm just running through a few um, sort of extreme events in Australia. So this went on for a number of years. Um, rainfall was around 60% below average and it really did decrease the, the land area that could be used for agriculture. And it had massive impacts on communities and rural mental health, as I mentioned. So, um, you know, an increase in depression and suicide. Um, it affected um, people living in cities as well, obviously with food availability and prices. And we, we have changed again, you know, another way that we've tried to adapt um, is with things like water restrictions but these sorts of things can only go so far and we're expecting to see um, a continuation of decreased rainfall in the southeast of Australia and so drought will actually become um, you know the norm if you like um, at the opposite end in 2011 we had the severe floods in Queensland um, so this caused uh, what was what has been termed an inland tsunami, where seven metres of water just ran swept through a town. 
um, 38 people died and 200,000 people overall were affected. So um, this had massive direct um, costs, obviously, to people's health, and it also cost a lot um, to the economy, to the point where um, there was a flood levy um, put on people's, you know, on tax returns. Um, people paid a flood levy that year um, to help um, re recoup some of that lost um, GDP. Um, some more severe storms, um, this time South Australia. So this was very much like a, a, a cyclone happening in South Australia. So winds of 140 kilometres um, and it took down, um, you know, transmission towers. So, and that is actually literally a photo of Adelaide at the bottom without um, any lights on. So lots of um, power went out everywhere. And um, this was my introduction to Brisbane. I moved to Brisbane in uh, February 2017, and um, this is what this was my bedroom. So um, wearing my wellies, sweeping out the water from Cyclone Debbie, and it had much bigger impacts again. So massive impacts on now um, winter vegetable supply around the country as areas were hit. Now more recently, and um, from where I'm broadcasting from today, so southeast Queensland, not normally an area known for bushfires. It's usually far too moist um, and foresty, um, but we had major fires in um, December 2018 and then a repeat again in similar areas in 2019 um, in September. And I'm sure all of you, this is very fresh in everybody's memories, our black summer bushfires from last, um, just from last summer. And this was the photo I took um, as I went to Canberra for Christmas to see my family. And um, this was the view that I was greeted with. And it, it had already been very smoky in Brisbane from the fires that we had around there. And I know that Sydney and Melbourne suffered as well. Um, but Canberra, the smoke was extraordinary. Um, and it went on for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, so at one point when all those major cities were, um, those, Australia's three largest cities were affected, there was more than 8 million people who were basically had become, you know, three pack a day smokers. Um, and that, you know, obviously includes children as well. Um, and I mean, in Canberra in uh, December last year, there were, you know, we were already wearing masks. So we we're kind of ahead of the game there um, for this year. And, you know, it can be kind of, this is how it feels sometimes. So so this headlines, Australians recovering from their 15th once in a lifetime disaster. This is from a number of years ago now, but it really highlights that what we're seeing is a frequency, the, um, an increased frequency of those extreme events that we wouldn't, you know, that might've once come one in a hundred years, you know, you might have a one in 100 year flood. It might now be once every seven years, for example. So it, um, while this is, you know, a satirical headline, it actually really shows what we're, what we're looking at now with, with climate change and increasing extreme weather. And similarly, um, you know, in Australia, we do tend to laugh a bit at, um, you know, the extremes that we're exposed to. So this was one that um, was warning people not to go swimming in floodwaters. Okay, so how, how have we um, adapted? Well, as I've mentioned, we've changed the way that we think about things, but we've also had to change the way that we measure and represent things. So in 2013, the Bureau of Meteorology had to add two new colours to weather maps so that they could actually show where temperatures were exceeding 50 degrees. We've never had to do that before. That wasn't an issue, but it had become an issue. So if you're not, if you're not measuring something, if you're not representing something, then it, you're invisibilising it as well. So, you know, it's very important to be able to actually show what's going on. 
And similarly, following the 2009 Victorian bush, bushfires, a new level um, was added to the fire danger rating of catastrophic. Um, so, you know, catastrophic conditions, it's the, the don't even try to stay and defend your home if the fire breaks out, you just need to, to get up and leave. Um, what concerns me is obviously there's, you know, climate change isn't over yet um, and I'm kind of waiting to, to see what the next possible rating might be. Okay, so once, um, you know, in 2013, those colours were added. In 2017, they were most definitely needed, so it didn't take very long. Um, so this is the forecast map for Australia in February 2017. Large areas of, of purple on there with those new colours. Um, and similarly, we had some records broken across New South Wales at that time. And at that time, Shane Fitzsimmons, who you might remember from the Black Saturday fires, um, talked about if you're caught out in the open under these sorts of conditions, you are likely to die. So he's not mincing any words there. It's pretty extreme. But he also said, this is as bad as it gets. And I hate to, hate to say it, but it's not actually as bad as it's going to get. And this is what brings us to, is this the new normal? So this photo was taken of um, Corrigian Beach um, just in September last year, um, fires where they shouldn't have been fires. And I mean, what it does show is the, the apocalypse is great for, for photography. It does make for some beautiful photos. Initially looking at that, it looks like a sunrise or a sunset, but it's actually a, um, a beach community on fire. So is it the new normal? Well, here are my two beautiful children. They're a little bit older than this now. And I've, um, if you have a look at the, the graph on the, um, on the screen, you can see that there's, this basically gives us two options. Um, the blue option is if we you know, drastically reduced um, our emissions pretty much now. Um, and the red, the red um, sort of flume, I suppose, um, suggest plume sort of shows where, um, where we're actually heading at the moment. Um, so I've just popped on there to and kind of trying to humanise this because we sort of think that's a grand scale something in the future. But I've got um, maybe I've been quite generous with my lifetime here, but I've estimated um, how long I might live for on this graph. And, you know, we can see that, um, you know, if we head up from 2060 and sort of head up vertically, the options aren't particularly good. So we're probably sitting at around four degrees if we don't um, do anything particularly strongly by then, by the time I'm in a very at-risk age group. Um, but for my kids, um, that's going to hit them around middle age. And, you know, if I ever have grandchildren, then they're going to be born into a world that is already, um, you know, where temperatures are already extremely high. Now, a little bit about why we're there and um, what we need to do. So if we think 2020, this is where we are at the moment. Um, there's about, even if we were to stop all our emissions today, like just cut them off or whatever, there's about another 20 years of warming in the pipeline. Uh, and that's about another half a degree of warming in the pipeline, even if we stopped everything today. So if you think about where we are now globally at around a um, little bit over one degree, that takes us up over the 1.5, even if we stopped all emissions today. So it is critical that we start, um, you know, actually, you know, rapidly reducing and drawing down um, those emissions. So that's the, just putting on there the 20 year um, time scale. So we'd expect temperatures to continue to rise until around 2040 before they'd get a chance to stabilize. Most countries or many countries are starting to talk about net zero emissions by 2050. So I've just popped that on that um, graph there so you can see um, what that's looking like. And if we go to net zero at 2050, we're looking at 2070 until things have a chance of stabilizing. 
Now, one of the, the problems with that, and I'll get to talk about in a little bit, is that by that time, the, the, um, the climate's going to be out of our control because of tipping points, which I'll talk, to, talk about in the, next, um, in the next few minutes as well. So it becomes a point, it doesn't actually matter what we do, we sort of set off these other systems that we'll do that will keep um, the climate changing. And if we want to think about, you know, where we could have actually have been, this, um, this is 1997 when the Kyoto Protocol came out, and if we'd actually done something drastic then, we'd be pretty much at the maximum temperature now um, that we would be reaching and it would stabilise from here on in. So if we'd actually taken action in the 90s when, when we could have, um, about where we are now is about as bad as it would get. Okay, but how much control do we actually have over the climate? So um, for any of you interested in some um, sort of, I guess, nightmare scenarios, if you like, um, where we may not actually have much of a, a choice. We may not be able to rein in climate change if we let it go too far. So the Paris Agreement um, from 2015 was it was an agreement to limit warming to two degrees with an aspiration to limit to 1.5. Well, as I've said, we've probably already passed that just because of the warming that's in the pipeline already and where we've got to already. So we really do need to, to work hard to rein it in under two degrees. And why we need to do that is because even at the one to do two degree average warming, um, we're starting to see systems collapse. So ice sheet collapse um, leading to sea level rise, but also um, it contributes to, you, you get less reflection of heat as well. So absorbing more heat. Um, you will get a change in ocean currents and I mentioned earlier that methane is a very potent greenhouse gas that we don't talk about too much, but there's a lot of it trapped in permafrost. And if that permafrost starts to melt, then that methane will be released. Um, and that will, that's a very potent greenhouse gas as well. So all of these things can lead to runaway climate change where it might actually get completely out of our control. So we do need to work really hard to keep the warming um, you know, as low as possible. So can we adapt? So I've sort of talked about, is it the new normal? And I said, well, probably not, um, can we adapt? And we can to some degree, but there's a limit to how much we can adapt, the biophysical limits, economic limits, geographic limits. Um, so, you know, for example, um, you know, as, as sea level rise takes over land, as um, less land is available for food production um, and so on. So we do have, you know, we can build things like early warning systems to tell us when there's going to be, um, you know, a heat wave or a dengue outbreak. Um, we can shore up our health systems, make them a little bit more resilient. Um, we can obviously give extended care for family, friends and neighbours during hot weather, check in on them, make sure they're okay. Um, we can provide drought relief flood relief and bushfire relief. We can put, you know, flood levies um, on people's incomes to, to pay for, for those sorts of catastrophes. But it's no more than just tweaking around the edges. Um, those things don't, act, you know, at some point we won't be able to, to actually do what we, um, you know, to, to be able to cope in, in that climate. So it, those sorts of things, there's no match for what's actually to come. So the only real tenable option is to urgently cut emissions. So um, if we don't, drastically um, and urgently and meaningfully cut our emissions, the future not only looks uninsurable, so you won't be able to insure your home in a bushfire area, for example, but it's, it will also be uninhabitable. Some of you may have seen um, the news around the State of the Climate report that came out the other day, and I think this, um, this quote from Jackie Brown is very telling. So we think of this decade being hot, but this decade will be one of the coolest in the next hundred years. 
So that's a point to, to really think about and about the, the action that we need to take now to make sure that that future does not become uninhabitable. So how do we do that? So a good thing to know where our emissions actually come from. So I'm just going to look at Australia for a minute. Um, and most of our emissions come from coal burning for electricity, so 35% of our emissions. The next greatest amount comes from transport, so, um, you know, petrol-based cars and trucks and so on. And this um, next, next amount is for, for things like, um, you know, the gas that we use in cooking and, and heating and so on. So that's what stationary energy excluding electricity means, means largely gas. Um, and you'll also notice over... Oops, just lost my screen for a minute. Um, you'll notice in the, um, the green 10% section, so that's looking at fugitive emissions, and you're thinking, well, what are fugitive emissions? Well, when we talk about, um, it, it's emissions that um, escape when we're trying to, um, you know, mine or frack gas, for example, um, and, and they're probably vastly underestimated, so we're not really counting, even counting properly. So the key things here, if we look at, um, you know, take the biggest contributor, it, it's from coal burning for electricity. So it's a good one to target for reducing. Now, if we're going to have just even a chance of staying below two degrees, and this is only a chance, it's a 50-50 chance, we've actually got to leave most of the coal in the ground, most fossil fuels in the ground. Um, we, we can't actually afford to keep digging this up and, and keep digging up and burning, um, burning fossil fuels. And yet, um, so a quick look at Australia's emissions reduction policy, it's, it's extraordinarily woeful. So it's 26 to 28% um, reduction by 2030, and that's relative to 2005 levels, which were extraordinarily high. So Australia's still looking at coal mining expansion um, up here in Queensland's Galilee Basin. So um, both the state and federal governments are complicit in that. Um, and that is um, intended largely to supply India with the, with the argument that it's cleaner than coal from elsewhere. So, you know, this coal is not as bad as coal from elsewhere, but what it does do, it will lock in those countries and lock in the world to burning coal for the next 30 to 60 years. That's the plan. Um, and we just can't afford to do that um, with the state of the climate and where we're at so far. You might have heard of um, something called clean coal. Um, it's really not. It's like, you know, putting a, a, or like a mild cigarette, you know, it's still going to kill you. It's just, it might do it slightly more slowly. So it's a 20% reduction in, in emissions. So it's still highly polluting. Um, it's also very, very expensive. Um, and in Australia at the moment, what we're seeing is that the cost of new renewable energy is actually cheaper than the cost of new coal. Um, so coal is actually increasingly unsellable as well. Um, it, coal creates pollution at every single stage, so it's not just the burning and, and climate change that we're concerned about, it's actually very dangerous for the communities surrounding, um, surrounding coal mines as well and in the, in the transport corridors um, and also for the workers. So, you know, we've seen a re-emergence of black lung disease. Um, in the Hunter Valley, um, there's a statistic of 42 million kilograms of dust um, is deposited over the Hunter Valley just through the transportation of coal. So it's dangerous at every single stage. And it does actually affect people in communities and it does, you know, it's visible. You can see it on your house. Um, so this is a self-portrait done by a six-year-old um, using the coal dust that covers her house. Um, and this was in the Illawarra, another coal, coal mining and coal transport area. Okay, so Australia is looking pretty woeful um, internationally on how we're doing on renewable energy. And, you know, you think about all the sun and the wind and so on that we have, we've got a great opportunity here to, to really excel in this space. 
So we do have a choice. We can decide what kind of society we want to live in. Um, we can think not only about our energy source, but also about urban planning and transport and social capital and cohesion. And they're the sorts of things we'll really need to think about if we're going to have the best shot um, at avoiding the worst um, health impacts of climate change. And, you know, very mindful that a number of communities are built on coal jobs. So actually being able to, to provide tangible um, examples of what, what new jobs will look like um, in those areas is very important. Um, so a number of benefits of um, reducing emissions, immediate benefits, we don't have to wait for the climate. We'll just have, you know, if we stopped mining coal today, we'd have cleaner air tomorrow. So it's very, it's very simple. Um, just to point out that humans aren't the only things on the planet. So um, not only human health, but wildlife. Um, you know, we lost around a billion animals is the estimate in those um, black summer bushfires. Um, companion animals, working animals, livestock and so on, all affected by um, extremes of climate as well. And we do need to think about animals when we're, um, you know, making our plans for um, what to do during emergencies. It's also a lot of cultural icons um, that are at risk as well. So, and, you know, coming down to our sense of identity, um, the Great Barrier Reef, I think, has had three major bleaching events um, in recent years. And, you know, if we hit sort of around 1.5, it's probably not even going to exist anymore. Um, and then not only the, the loss of icons, but the loss of whole countries. So this is taken from Kiribati um, in the South Pacific, uh, not in the South Pacific, but in the Pacific, um, and it's low-lying coral atolls. And this was a road, um, and this photo was taken at low tide. So at high tide, that road is completely, completely underwater. So the decisions we make today matter. Um, just to put it in perspective, a child born today in Australia is likely to live um, to the end of the century. So they'll be there when those temperatures, if, you know, unless we take, um, you know, rapid and, and urgent action, and um, they'll be there when those temperatures hit at least, um, you know, th three degrees if all the, um, if every country sticks to their Paris pledge, we're, we're going to hit three degrees. So we actually need to do better than that. Um, and there's no time to waste. So, you know, we've still got another 20 years of warming in the pipeline before things will start to stabilise if we do things now. So who will make it happen? Uh, well, we've been trying for a, a number of decades to, to get some significant action and it has been very difficult. So in some places, um, it will be elected officials and lawmakers who, who are on board and who do um, instigate those changes. But there's also, and I, in fact, I wanna draw your attention to the city's power partnership. So this is a sort of a consortium of local governments who have pledged to, to um, reduce emissions and to take action on climate change. But we also have the power of civil society. So the, the power of you. Um, so NGO activities such as sharing information, um, divesting from fossil fuel, and we see that um, not only amongst individuals but industries as well and institutions. So a number of universities, for example, no longer invest in fossil fuel. Uh, we've seen a rise of civil disobedience and extinction rebellion, um, although this year I have to say it's been quite quiet on that front with the, with the pandemic. Um, but we've also seen some significant court action as well. So recently, some of you might have seen um, a, a sort of a case against the REST Super Fund um, in which um, somebody took them to court and said, well, you know, you're not protecting, um, you haven't thought about climate change, you know, how are you protecting my investment from climate change? So making changes in those ways. So I suspect we'll see more and more happen through the courts. Now, in the midst of another sort of global um, sort of crisis, health crisis. Um, we've got obviously got COVID um, going on still at the moment. We're, ex we're very lucky here in Australia in the situation that we're in. But just some parallels between COVID and climate change and things that, you know, 
we could draw lessons from. So Australia's response to COVID, swift, decisive, and based on evidence and expert opinion. A little bit shaky to start with, but improved very quickly. Um, it required some massive spending up front and rapid action, which seemingly seemed at odds with ideology. So we saw free childcare and we managed to eliminate poverty overnight, at least temporarily. So we know that these things can be done and it wasn't that, that difficult. Um, so this has meant that in Australia, we've largely avoided a public health catastrophe. And I want to say so far, because obviously it's not over yet. So it shows that government can enact changes in the public interest quickly if they choose to. So it is all about choice. Um, and also just to kind of think of a bit of a brighter note, the COVID recovery um, is a perfect opportunity to reset our emissions trajectory. So we do have a chance to choose which industries we support for that economic recovery. And we do have an opportunity to build a more equitable society and to boost investment in renewable energy. And now that I've brought you up a little bit, I'm just going to bump you down again as I finish off. I've had this slide, um, this postcard on my office door for more than 20 years. So, um, for those, it says there must be a source of energy down there and it's it's two sort of business looking um, people looking down at the at the ground rather than up at the sun. Um, and I just want to show that, you know, we can't possibly have a gas led recovery and deal with the deal with the climate change issue. So we really do need to think much more creatively. Um, and I'd urge all of you to to use whatever um, powers you can, um, you know, to, to speak with your local um, local members to, to make sure that this message comes through. We can't actually afford to keep expanding coal mining. We can't afford to to um, to rely on gas. You know, 20, 30 years ago, gas might have been a transition fuel, but it's not anymore. We don't need it. We can switch straight to renewables. And on that note, I shall finish. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au